Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. <laughs> Again, we are in session 22 of our look at the book of Revelation, and we're taking a look again in chapter 9, uh, the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments. But again, before we go into this Bible study any further, let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we approach your throne, it is again in this season of prayer that we ask for your understanding, that you would give us both a heart and a mind that is open to your word, and... Uh, that your spirit would discern the truths within it for us, that you might teach us both to be bold in our willingness to proclaim your word to others and to learn more, Lord, for the sake of our own sanctification. So be with us now as we seek to learn more about you and to make you known. In the most holy name of Christ we pray, amen. Revelation, again, is the only book of the Bible that gives us its own outline. And we are in the third section, the things that will take place after the image of the risen Christ and after the seven churches, which are John's present. So we are in the second part of the heptatic structure of Revelation. We've talked about the first six of the seven seals, and now we're into the seven trumpet judgments. And like the other things in the book, everything is layered. You have... Seven seals of the scroll that is the title deed of the universe, effectively. But when you open this, when Christ opens the seventh seal, that seventh seal, uh, this, the instructions within the scroll begin seven trumpet judgments with a parenthesis or a parathetical statement between the sixth and the seventh of each of each one. There was that between the. The uh, seals, there is one be that between the trumpet number six and trumpet number seven, there will be one between the vials of wrath, vial six and vial seven. So everything that is happening in this book is happening in a pattern of sevens, or more apt, six plus one. Six, of course, being a number that symbolizes an incompleteness or a fallen state of something, seven being complete or holy. So why trumpets? Trumpets are symbolic in the Bible for a multitude of different things. They open religious festivals and worship times, as we saw in our Torah study. They are used to call out military commands, as we saw in the book of Numbers. They can be used as a warning call to civilians in a certain city, the way that bells were used in the Middle Ages. And they're also heralding calls to bring the people to a new knowledge of something, either to proclaim the giving of the law, in the case of Moses, or a new ordinance, uh, the taking of a civil action or the organizing of certain events, whenever you'd call people to the city gates, that happened with a certain trumpet call, or the arrival of a royal official, as heralding as we think of heralding, when you uh, see a movie depicting the Middle Ages where uh, there are these people with very strange-looking green outfits with pointy hats, and they have trumpets that are long, straight trumpets with uh, someone's heraldry dangling from it. So what, which version of a trumpet call are we talking about here? I'll leave that for you to decide. Sometimes we, we may consider it a warning because it happens before an event, or we could consider it a military call because God is uh, imposing judgment on something by, ask, by ordering some of the angelic host to perform a feat before him. I want to call your attention back to something that we talked about during the last session. The warning cry of the eagle or the warning cry of the angel, depending upon which translation that you read, where at the very end of the chapter, the angel declares, woe, 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 three woes to the inhabitants or the citizens of the earth. Basically, the angel's way of saying, okay, you've already gone through four of these trumpet judgments, but let me tell you, you ain't seen nothing yet. 
And getting into that, we're about to take a look at the, the two before the, ther- the parenthetical statement, the two before the pause. The, two, the first two of the trumpet judgments of woe, as I'm being titled, titling them here. Trumpet number five and trumpet number six. So, if you'll take out your copy of God's Word with me, and let's go ahead and open to Revelation chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Revelation 9, starting with verse 1. And again, if you're just now joining us for these studies, um, everything that we do here on Wednesday nights is archived for you on our YouTube channel at HylonBaptistChurch.org. Just search Hylon in the search tab and it will pull up our channels and you'll see all of our sermons and all of our Journey Through the Bible series in there listed for you if you'd like to go back and take a look at some of this stuff in review. Starting with verse 1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft to the abyss, and smoke came out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came out of the smoke on the earth, and power was given to them like the power of scorpions. Have, that, that scorpions have upon the earth. So this is getting into the first part of the fifth trumpet judgment. First of all, I want you to know that the term star is sometimes used of a, of a multitude of different things symbolically through the course of Scripture. Sometimes it does refer to a meteorite, uh, something that, and we covered a lot of this in the last session, but a lot of times uh, when they talk about the heavenly host, they're not talking about the stars necessarily, or they'll use the term star to mean an angel, an angelic being. So when it says when the stars fell down, we can from this passage uh, infer that this is an angel that is flying down, that has been given to him. We're assuming because of the term him there in in the phrase instead of it, that it is indeed a person, a created being, a God. Now the question is in many of the commentaries, Is this an angelic worker sent out on the mission of this trumpet judgment? Or is this an image of Satan being cast out permanently from heaven? Now we know from the book of Job that Satan actually, even though he's a fallen, he is the enemy of God. He is the enemy of the people of God. He is the accuser of the brethren. In fact, that's what that word Satan means, Han Satan, the accuser. So there is some conjecture as to whether or whether or not this is him being finally kicked out. Because we know in the book of Job that to a point he still has permission to come before the throne of God to make his accusations. There are several other instances of the stars falling in judgment in the scriptures that's available for you there on screen. And a good deal of them do infer Uh, an angel descending to the earth. But whatever the case may be, this being was given the key to the pit, the abuso, which from the Greek translates as to a bottomless pit. We can infer that they're talking about hell, what we in English call hell, which is a, a borrowed term actually from Scandinavia. It's the place of judgment, the place of torment. And this being was given authority over it. Now, something that we get wrong because of cartoon theology is we think of the the devil as being in charge of hell. We think of uh, Satan as being a king or a dominion over the kingdom of hell, the fallen. Well, first of all, the kingdom of hell is not a kingdom. The Bible tells us that it is a place that was set aside without the presence of God to be the place of judgment. So he's not going there to reign. He's going there to be punished himself, to be robbed of his power, to be robbed of any authority, which suggests to me that whoever this being is that was flying down from heaven is not, in fact, the devil, but is an angelic messenger who's being sent to open the gates. Why on earth would God want that to happen? We'll get into that in just a second. But this angel was given authority either to imprison or to release, to open or to close. 
And he opens the pit and immediately smoke billows out. Darkens the sun, darkens the sky. We already saw in the previous session that the sun had already lost a third of its luster. So here it's going even further dark. Incidentally, I'd also challenge you as we talk about the death toll here of, of God's judgment, it ratchets up an awful lot. You take a percentage of a percentage of a percentage as we keep going. But as the gates are open, locust-like creatures come out of the pit. We can infer by association that they're demonic, that they have something to do with those that, uh, with the, the, the demons that were cast out of heaven. And they're actually given orders to torment the citizens of the earth or the, those that have been unsealed, that are not sealed by God. But they're ordered not to harm any remaining other form of life on the planet, which is unusual. Why? Because what do locusts do? They eat everything, all the crops, everything that is green, that is leafy, that is good for food, they completely devour. So for these beings to be told, leave the plants alone, that should clue you in that we're not talking about locusts as we understand them, but a creature that John is trying to describe for our benefit, locust-like, as locusts. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people, so it has a specific target, who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. And as we talked about earlier, that's the emblem of allegiance between the, the kingdom of this world, which is a false kingdom, the enemy, the devil, the antichrist, and the mark that says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. They were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like a torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death. Now, I find this really interesting. This might be something that you want to jot down. Again, there are some passages in Revelation that God is exposing a truth for us to consider as members of the family of God. And there are some things that he's allowing John to write down to kind of give us a fervor to want to prevent the people that we know in our lives and in future generations from having to undergo these judgments. As a Christian, you are called to be a minister of reconciliation on God's behalf to your family, to your friends, to everyone that you meet. Be that in, in the mission field out of your comfort zone or within your comfort zone. So what, one of the things that John is doing here uh, practically is trying to give us a taste of what these who are condemned, who have condemned themselves, as, as in his gospel he tells us, to rescue the perishing before this happens. People will seek death and they will not find it, but death will flee from them. Now think about that for a second. In this judgment, the people of the earth are being so tormented that they are seeking after, they're trying to kill themselves. They're trying to commit suicide. They're trying to find ways to take their own lives. But according to this passage, in this five-month span of time, death itself, the mercy of death, rather, is not something that's, that they're going to be able to find. Now, I can't imagine for the life of me how that would be accomplished. But that's part of this judgment. They will be tormented to the point where they would rather be dead, and yet nothing that they're capable of doing to themselves or to each other will result in their death. So for five months, they will be subject to this torment. Death will be withheld from the earth. They will want to die. They will try to die, but they can't. And I want you to notice this also, that this span of time, roughly 150 days, is the same length of time as the flood of Noah. Now, in your notes, I want you to put a pen on that. What was Noah's covenant? The covenant that was sealed by the appearance of the rainbow. One of its stipulations was that God would never again try the earth through water, but he would try it again through fire. Pay close attention to that. Note that. We'll come to that in a second. 
The appearance of these locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns. Notice that something like, this is a simile. The locusts aren't literally wearing golden crowns. But the structures on top, the way the head is shaped, appears like there's a crown on top of his head. Something like golden crowns on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They're not actually human faces. But something about them resembles a person. They had hair like a, like a woman's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. Now there are some people, artists out there, that actually uh, create these very grotesque depictions on what these creatures look like. The fact of the matter is that's kind of presumptuous. There's no way that we can understand truthfully what John is saying here until we see it ourselves. He's trying his best to, in language, describe what he's seeing with what he knows. So when he says it's like unto something, that, that doesn't mean that, again, that this is a grasshopper with a person's head stuck on it, with a crown on top of it, with long flowing hair, but rather... <laughs> He's trying his best to describe in language that he understands. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They had tails with singers like, stingers like scorpions, so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. There's that span of time again. Now this is a curious statement they had as their king the angel of the abyss. And you read that correctly. Angel of the abyss, not the demon. The angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, the name Apollyon. Something I want you to, to see here is that even though these are two separate languages, it has a very similar sound. So the descriptions that we're getting of these locusts is that they were shaped like horses. Something interesting I found out during my studies is that, that one of the words in Spanish, one of the words in Spanish for a locust is uh, las cavaletas, or the many, the many horses. German, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but the German word for locust translates a hay horse. Isn't that interesting? This is a picture of a swarm of desert locusts in Samburu National Park. Now these are the standard desert locusts, the uh, being that's just a little bit larger than uh, what we know is a large grasshopper here in the United States. And yet they can get a whole lot worse. From what I've told in Nevada, there are actually fields loaded with a similar kind of creature that you have to wrap chains around your tires in order to get through. This is what they look like up close. And again, these are the desert flying locusts. This is the, the species that John would have been familiar with. They're native to the North African uh, area as well as uh, the Arabian Peninsula, Asia Minor, and into India. But these are not necessarily the beings that we're talking about here. For one, he says that their heads look like human being heads, and they're crowned. They have hair flowing like a woman's hair. Teeth like lions, breastplates like iron. That could either mean it's color, but he says they're dressed for battle, which means apparently their exoskeleton is like armor. They are dressed for war or created in that, that way. The, the sound of their wings and their flying is the sound like running chariots. They have tails like scorpions with stingers. Stingers which they use to inflict, inflict torment on the citizens of the earth. And they had a king or someone that was given authority over top of them, placed more than likely in authority over top of them. Now that's interesting from a point of view. If you've been in one of my Bible studies before, you know that I try to look for other passages in the Bible where the Bible itself becomes a commentary on its own, where the Word of God tries to explain the rest of the Word of God. 
And in Proverbs 30, chapter 27, we have this curious phrase. Why on earth did that come to Solomon's mind? The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in ranks. He's describing the behavioral pattern of an insect. And and you think to yourself, well, I hate to say it this way, please forgive me, Solomon, but well, duh. But I think that this is an instance where the Holy Spirit is pre-configuring himself, uh, or pre-telling an explanation for us. Because the locusts have no king. So the beings that John is trying to describe here are like locusts, but they cannot be locusts. If you take those in context, I believe that's what he's saying, that these, that these are demonic creations, that they're a demonic creature, a manifestation of a malevolent spirit. Uh, that has happened several times in the Bible before. I think about in the era of the kings, right, as the northern kingdom was falling, that God did not use the more righteous southern kingdom as its emblem of judgment, but he called forth the Assyrian Empire, a holy pagan people, to pronounce judgment on the people of God who had betrayed him. So there are these times where the, the wording suggests in this passage that God has ordered an angel to use the forces of the enemy to bring judgment upon the earth. And that that demonic force is all too happy to inflict that type of judgment. God has a habit of of using very poetic justice. Let me see if I can rephrase the question for for them. Um, if I've got you right, do you think that it's in the nature of God for God to use uh, forces of evil to inflict judgment? That's a, that's a reoccurring pattern all throughout Scripture. In the book of Judges, uh, when Israel falls away from the worship of God, God uses the Philistines to bring judgment on the people of God, to bring them back. In the case of the northern kingdom, when they separated themselves from the worship of God altogether and started worshiping idols and adopted the religion of the surrounding kingdoms, it was one of those surrounding kingdoms that God uses as military judgment over them. So God basically, I think he has a way of saying, okay, if if these are the objects of your affection, I'm going to show you where that leads. And he unleashes or he takes his hand of protection off. And whatever he was doing to constrain those enemy forces, the same forces that were tempting the people away from God all that time, the chains have now been loosed and they can do whatever it is they want to do to the people of God. Or in this case, to those that outright reject God. So yeah, that's, that's a reoccurring pattern throughout the Bible. No, he would not have. And I'm glad that you mentioned that. Uh, the comment was made so that you can hear this, that, uh, that God would not have used his church as an instrument of vengeance. And that's very true. Uh, in nowhere in scripture does the agent of reconciliation ever become the soldier of death. And I know we can't say that it's always been held that way in our own history. The crusades come to mind where the church rejected at that point a thousand plus years of its own doctrine and said, Deus volt, God wills it, and we will be the instrument of judgment against the foreigner. Or on these shores, that uh, slavery is in the Bible, so it must be okay, knowing full well that the slavery described in the Bible is not the same thing that was practiced on these shores. So we as the people of God 
are not to be the agents of judgment, we're to be the agents of reconciliation to rescue them from judgment. That's always been the church's task, not to be the military strong arm of God that bends someone to his will, but who makes the plea, as Paul calls out, the plea, we, he, he is making his plea for reconciliation through us. I hope, did I answer all that? Okay. So if, if you ever hear someone preach or teach that the only way that God's will is going to be done is for the church to enact violence, turn away from whoever that is immediately because that is, that is wholly antithetical to Scripture, particularly the writings of Paul. All right, let's move on. Uh, verse 12, the first woe has passed. There are still two more woes to come after this. So the Holy Spirit is really pointing out that things are ramping up. So for five months, for a period of five months, give or take, human beings on the planet are being tormented like never before. They are longing after death. They are not finding it. They're crying out for it. And still it doesn't come. So what we can assume based on what we've just read is that these are not just these are not just um, instinct-minding insects the way that regular locusts are, that they have an intelligence, that they are strong, that they are protected based on their, for lack of a better term, biology, that there's a great multitude of them, that they are capable of inflicting great pain there are kind of a reflection of the fiery serpent judgment we found in Numbers 21 where the people had, had grown stiff-necked against God, so God sent to them in their complaints uh, these bra brass-colored serpents to torment them. When Moses wrote, uh, raised up the, the serpent on the, the pole in the desert, they could look to the serpent and see their sin being judged and understand what was going on and they were healed. They would not die. If they didn't look up, they died. Now we see kind of this dark reversal of that judgment where no matter what they do, they can't die and they are always living in that constant state of torment. The only thing that is constraining them right now though, and it is an effective constraint, is God's authority. Their targets are limited. If there are any who have been sealed as part of God's kingdom on earth at this time, they are not impacted. The rest of the planet, all of the rest of the life on the planet are not impacted, just those who live in disbelief, in willful disbelief. Again, we can assume that they're demonic in origin because of their association with, the, uh, with hell, that they are driven out to bring judgment upon the earth, and their target is the unsealed. Anything to that point from either of you or from anybody online? When well, that's that's part of the question of is the smoke actually smoke, or is the smoke a cloud of these things coming out of the pit? I mean, we've we've heard stories of a gathering swarm of locusts so thick that you can't see the sunlight for them. So the question is, once a, okay, hell is a bottomless pit filled with fire and brimstone where the soul of the unredeemed fall and burn throughout eternity. That's what the term abuso actually means. So when those gates are open and these things swarm out, the question on many of the commentators' minds is, is this actual smoke you know, associated with that fire or is it a giant swarm of these things that it's so dense and so thick that you can't see through? So that being the case, they would have to have wings. That being the case, yes, they would have to be, have wings. They would have to fly. And the locusts that, um, that John would have been familiar with, the, the desert locusts that I was showing you on screen, they, they do fly. They do have wings. And there are a lot of, of people out there that try to associate uh, these creatures with um, helos, with uh, 
Vietnam era helicopters and the like. And I warn you against making those presuppositions. Every generation that has had this book made unfruitful presuppositions about what John was describing. Are these helicopters? Are these some type of um, other aircraft being manned and piloted? Well, the problem with either of those interpretations, number one, is that John says that these things are being driven by an, a created being from the kingdom of God, falling from the kingdom of God or descending, however you want to think about it. It's a spiritual being that is driving these creatures to do their dirty work all throughout the planet. Uh, so it, it, it doesn't fit the black and white of Scripture. But again, every time that a generation has come in God, they've tried to put a meaning behind this. We've, we've heard uh, the instructions that, uh, that the Antichrist is actually the Pope and that the world organization that comes to power is really the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, same thing with the United Nations. Same thing with the Roman Empire. And with each successive generation, it gets proven false. Yeah, it's an attempt to say the time is now. This is what's already in place. Everybody be afraid of it. So please don't make those presuppositions as you're reading because it could, you know, it, we, we think because of uh, the situation that we're in right now, we think that the end is nigh when the truth may be. It could be several hundred years after today. It could be another 2,000 years. We don't know. And because we don't know, just, just as it is, is against the Word of God to sculpt something for the sake of worshiping it, to me, kind of the reverse is true that it's against the Word of God for us to plug ourselves into the Scripture where we don't belong and come to hate something and use this to back up that, that hate. Do you see what I'm saying? There are some that use this, uh, this, these Scriptures as a reason to argue against membership in the United Nations. Or to argue against the Baptist World Alliance, for instance, claiming it's a giant worldwide organization. Please don't make that leap of logic. Because until this time draws nigh, we won't understand and will be guilty of misapplying darkness where it may not exist. And trying to back it up by misapplying the Word of God. So I think that's one of the reasons that many pastors and many churches, even whole denominations, shy away from the book of Revelation. So please don't misapply it. Anything else on that passage before we go? All right. Verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and from the four horns of the golden altar that is before the throne of God... I heard a voice say, to the, a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels bound in the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for this hour, day, month, and year. Notice that. A lot of, of people say that this is another example of a demonic force because of the word being bound. But according to this, these are four angels, that word angelos is what is actually used here, who were prepared by God, basically given this task in advance for this exact moment and hour. Or as the Bible says, prepared for this hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. Now, the population has already been diminished by the, by the horsemen of death, by the pale green horsemen. So now another army of supernatural beings, of, 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 of angelic hosts, whether you subscribe to fallen or under God's service right now, is being sent out to effectively call a third of the, uh, a third of the population. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. Sulfur being what we 
here in the Bible of olden days refer to as brimstone because of the way that it burns when ignited. The heads of these horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. And again, there are those that, well, in, <laughs> uh, in the 15th and 16th centuries, there were actually uh, people that described these, these as cannons, which to me is kind of funny because that would suggest that people are riding on top of cannons. But tanks in today's time is something else that I've seen. The trouble is, well, again, these, these are beings being controlled by angels specifically set aside in the region of the Euphrates. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resembles, there's that um, languages again, that simile, which resembles snakes, have heads that inflict injury. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. So even though, even after the five months of torment, after unleashing 200 million horsemen, so to speak, whose mounts are able to breathe fire, for lack of a better term, or weapons, projectile weapons, whatever school you subscribe to here, even through all of that, and through earlier during the accounts of the, of, the, of the the sixth seal who cried out to the mountains, fall on us because of the, the judgment of the Lamb is upon us and who can stand it, they're still worshiping idols. And in the next verse, they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So the remnant of this, even after seeing it all, their stiff necks grow stiffer still. Do you think it was God's intent for this to bring some to repentance? Or when you're down here, you only got a third left. The, the question is, are we talking about God driving others to repentance or are we, or is God showing his power in an effect just to display, put his righteousness on display? We'll get, actually we'll get more into, more into that later on as we talk about um, the battle of Armageddon and then through that. But I want you to put a pin in that for right now because we will come back to it. So in the sixth judgment, we see that at least five months after the fifth judgment, after death has returned as a possibility to the earth, uh, beings that are called angels, not demons here in Revelation, are sent out with an attachment to the river the Euphrates, which is the easternmost boundaries of the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by God. The river Euphrates has always been the easternmost boundary of the land of Israel. Now I know that it's not the political boundary today, but that was the covenant boundary that God had established in the book of Genesis. The golden altar, remember, is the altar of incense, the altar that, res that, that is reminiscent of the bringing of prayers to God from the priest. Horns, the four spikes, on the corners of that altar, that golden altar, are symbols of power and authority. Remember, power meaning strength and authority, meaning the ability to put that strength to use and to give it a purpose and direction. Now, in this passage, we, we see these two terms. Lua, which means to loose or to let loose, to unbuy or to tie. This is talking about the angels in the river or the angels of the river. It can also mean figuratively to break up, to dissolve, to melt, or to allow to scatter. Deo, 
to bind, to fasten, figuratively to take possession of, or to put under obligation to. Likewise, it can also mean to prohibit or, or forbid. Now, what does all that mean? It means that, figuratively speaking, when John says that uh, you can loose those angels that are set aside for this purpose, um, one of the ways that figuratively you can restate that statement is to release from their immediate obligations to assume something else, to do something else. That's kind of a, a way to paraphrase what he may have been saying. Or he may have been saying that these angelic beings... In other words, these four angels are stationed here on this river, this river being the easternmost boundary. So that is their binding, that is their home base, that is their precinct. Let them loose. Demons are interesting when it comes to the Gospel of John and to John's other works. Now, the reason that I'm bringing this point home about what is an angel and what is a fallen angel is that John never actually talks about Jesus confronting demons in the gospel that bears his name. So you don't see um, that happening. And there are some commentators out there that say because John never addresses it, he must not have believed in it. Or because he never addresses it in the gospel, he must not, uh, he, he can use angel and demon interchangeably back and forth. But the fact of the matter is that word that typifies a demonic being and the word for angel are already well known in John's writings. So in other words, when John says angel, chances are good that John actually means an angel because he is not ignorant of the word for demon, as some would insinuate. We've seen angels bound around a river before. In fact, we may have very well seen these precise angels bound in the river. In Daniel chapter 12, we actually see a scene where he's at the river Euphrates, uh, being again a prime minister of Babylon, and he sees at least three angels in the last vision of the book that bears his name. One of them he identifies as Michael, the archangel. In Zechariah, we actually see horsemen bound at the borders of um, the Babylonian Empire in a valley of myrtle trees. And that's significant because myrtle trees are native to water areas. Now, I know that this is a stretch, but I want you to, to think about this for a second, that we've had an allusion to these horsemen before in the Bible, in the book of Zechariah of all places, in the first chapter, where he's talking about a, a, a back and forth that he's having with an angel and with horsemen that are there patrolling all over the earth. And we've talked about this in previous sessions. But I think that it's interesting now, right as that Zechariah is writing before the return from Babylon, and he's asking the angel to destroy, tell me what's going on with all this. And the angel uh, asks God, lifts his hand to heaven and asks God, when are you going to restore Jerusalem in a roundabout way? And there is a tribe of uh, a bunch of horsemen that just happen to be around in this valley, this rivered valley with all of these trees. So there is an Old Testament reflection of John's prediction, of John's revelation, of his prophecy. So they were prepared especially for this purpose and their ministry was to kill a third of the remaining human populace. And at their beck and call was over 200 million. They were described as having breastplates of armor with three colors. Fire red, which is representative of a war. And this word's uh, hesinth, which I've seen three different... How is it actually pronounced? Hyacinth. I'm sorry, my wife is the flower expert, not me. But hyacinths come in a variety of colors. And, but they are native to the Mediterranean region here. The trick is hyacinths, also, hyacinths all can come in uh, deep blue, 
dark red, dark red bordering on black is what I've heard in my commentaries, particularly in Strong's definitions, and purple. So depending upon which shade he's talking about here, blue, we've seen all over the place, uh, particularly in the Torah, is a reminder of God's authority. The blue thread that is supposed to run through all of the, the, uh, the sashes and the tassels on Jewish clothing that is a constant visible reminder to the person that wears it of the authority of God and the fact that they are in a covenantal relationship with the Lord. Red bordering on black, I could find nothing for. And I'm sorry that that, uh, that that O is out of place there, but purple, of course, is an emblem of royalty. It's always understood as such. Sulfur yellow, brimstone. Sulfur yellow or burning sulfur is emblematic of divine punishment, of a fire that never dies. Think of it as, as having the same connotation as napalm does today, or Greek fire back in the old days. You've, if you set something on fire with it, even if you dunk it under water, the fire does not go out. It is an unquenchable, unendurable fire. So three potential emblems of those colors, that uh, these are beings meant for war, that they represent God, and that they are bringers of judgment. Heads like lions that are emblematic of strength and danger. Living weapons breathing fire, smoke, and sulfur. Tails that resemble snakes that inflict injury. Notice it didn't say death, but injury. One can imply death. But the wording suggests that that was used for torture, to bring pain on top of death. The fact that a snake bite also in Scripture means or trans translates to our ears as a punishment for sin, snakes being an image of, of sin. The bite, of course, being an image of punishment. For the wages of sin is death. The survivors, still unrepentant, engaged in willful disbelief. Remember, there's a difference between doubting and willful disbelief. Doubting means that you're a victim of whatever circumstances that you're under. That's the quick knee-jerk reaction. Willful disbelief is where you're just digging your heels in emotionally, refusing to accept God and His Word. They're still denying, they're still witnessing all of these judgments, yet they're denying God's authority. And they're made stiff-necked. And I want you to notice also that the very same sins that is being enumerated here are reflected back as God's reason why He sent the flood of Noah in the first place. First of all, they're worshiping demons. And we can infer again that the Antichrist is already in, in, um, in power here. But not only that, they're worshiping stone idols, which makes you kind of wonder with the, the pagan gods of days past where they built things out of stone and metal and wood, were they really just trying to make images of a demon made manifest? A demon claiming to be God. Or are they just constructing a God image after their own heart, after their own imaginings, and crafting stories afterwards, basically worshiping themselves? Murders. Both instant, we're talking, and when we're talking sin here, we're talking not just personal sin, we're also talking institutional sin. So we're, uh, murders could be homicide, could also be genocide. Either way, they're non repentant of it. And this is, this is an impact of life having lost its sacred value. You are made in the image of God. If you are a human being, you have a sacred value in your life. And the only way that murders can be made institutional is if we strip life of that sacred value. When you, get, when you are stopped, when, when people stop seeing each other as a fellow human being, a person made in God's image, a person of eternal significance and divine worth, when that stops being the case, people become not people anymore, but functions, objects, beasts of burden. That's where slavery comes from. When human beings are disposable, chattel. When we become inconvenient, when we become disposable, you can easily get a... a, a, a 
when you stop thinking about the human soul and the divine within all of us, then people no longer have value and can be disposed of like tissues. Other people can be seen as objects, excuse me, obstacles to be overcome or a means to an end. Sorceries. The interesting thing about that word is the word that's actually translated from, from Greek into, as sorceries is the word pharmakia. Pharmakia from which we also get the word pharmacy, pharmaceuticals. Yes, chemical medicines or toxins. So this could refer to sorcery as, as in terms of the magical arts uh, found in connection with idolatry and fostered by it. That's from the outline of bis- biblical usage. It can also refer to potion, what would in this time be considered potion craft, something with the intention of altering mental states for purposes of worship or for existential experience. In other words, something that puts that you put in your body to distort all sense of reality. We're also talking about incantational prayers, casting spells. Something that uh, Jesus refers to in Matthew 6, 7 when he says, when you pray, do not pray like the pagans. And it's for this very reason, with their many words. In other words, what they're doing by casting a spell, quote unquote, is by reciting an incantation or praying to a demonic presence in order to curry favor from that uh, being or participating in a paganistic sacrifice. It covers pretty much all of it because it all involves engaging in a manner of worship that distorts your reality, that causes you to drift away from God, and that ultimately will destroy the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is your body. Let's move on. Sexual immorality. By this, it's often regarded in the Holy Word of God as reducing sexuality to a recreational activity which removes it of all of its sacred value. What do I mean by that? Sexual relationship is the relationship through which a human being created in the image of God comes about. It is not simply a matter between a man and a woman. It is a matter between a man, a woman, and God, the procreators and the creator in union together. A marital covenant is not just with a husband and wife. It's a three-way relationship between a husband, a wife, and the God who sanctifies that relationship. And we often forget about that. So it relates to just seeking pleasure at the expense of potential life. Boy, aren't we seeing that in today's culture. The child doesn't matter. It's an inconvenience. Let it die. Personal and uh, thefts. Now we can, again, we're talking about either institutionalized or personal. It is an outcome of the, of the hidden sin of jealousy or the, the foundational sin, I should say, of jealousy. And that's in the personal context. It could be institutional as well. Uh, it's institutionalized and corrupt governments and corporations and that takes the form of price gouging, unfair taxation, or as one of my commentators put it, socialism, which he defined as theft from the productive by the unaccountable. That should be by, not to, my apologies. So in his mind's eye, uh, socialism can be defined as taking property away from those who are actually productive, a theft that is undertaken by those who consider themselves to be unaccountable. That covers this passage of Scripture. Any other questions before we move on? Okay, let me close out with this really briefly. I want to encourage you in this practice of journaling. And I know that that I've touched on it at the very beginning of this study. But it's it's a spiritual discipline that I hope that you're engaging in 
because later on in your future, in the future of people that you don't even know are going to follow you, it helps you mature more than anything else that I know in Christ. Let me explain that. When you journal, you take your copy of God's Word. If you follow a devotional reading, or like if with this study you're asked to read a certain passage of Scripture, you read over that passage once just at regular speed, then again very slowly and deliberately. And as you're reading through the second time, you open a blank book, and you consider this, the following. What did you already know? If I'm asking you to journal your thoughts on Revelation chapter 10, which I will, I want you to start out by jotting down, what did you already know about this passage, or did you think you know? What is new to you reading it through this time? What did you think you know about it in times past? What did you just discover in this reading? What did the Holy Spirit reveal to you? What challenged you? What made you stop and think? What made you stop and check somewhere else in the Bible? Or check a help? Or even dig out the thesaurus? Or what do you disagree with? Have questions about? What in God's Word challenges you in your sensibilities today? And not only jot that down, but underline it in your copy of God's Word. Is this passage worthy of you going back later on to return to so that you can grow through it? In other words, if you find a commandment, say we're back in our Torah study, if you find one of the commandments that you vehemently disagree with, something that just doesn't sit right with you, is it because you don't understand it or because something about the way that you grew up says that that God has to be wrong here, but God can't be wrong, so I need to go back into God's Word And riddle it out. Is it worth continual study? Or is it worth asking your pastor or teachers about? Incidentally, that's, I think, one of the best ways of becoming Christ-like is finding the passages of Scripture that you don't agree with and then trying to figure out why did God put it there to begin with? Now, I know the phrase, well, God said it, that settles it, But at the same time, God is a God who is a very logical thinker, a master chess player. Why in his wisdom did he put that there? If you seek that out, number one, you'll grow yourself in Christlikeness because you'll deepen your understanding in the mind of God. And number two, you'll shape yourself because if you can understand God's argument, well, you won't shape yourself. The Holy Spirit will shape you in the attempt. Does that make sense? Also be on the lookout for potential memory verses. What do I need to carry around with me? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What do I need to take from my scripture reading and hold into my heart so I can keep it in my mind always? It's a gift to yourself as you go back and reference and grow. And it's also very much a gift to those who follow after you. Again, when I say journal, I'm not talking about a glorified diary. I'm talking about a written conversation that you have with God. Please take advantage of that. So for next session, read chapters 10 and 11. What do you find is the purpose of chapter 10? We're going to talk about the two witnesses. And I would like for you to to puzzle for yourself. Are these people that you've come across before in Scripture? Or are they someone completely different? What is the purpose in their ministry? And again, please journal. And please share what you find with the people in your groups. Anything else before we dismiss tonight? If not, Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to study your word, for the chance to grow through that which you have given us. Please use this time as we commit it and ourselves into your hands without any reservation. Please use it to both help us to grow in the likeness of your Son and to become better equipped at sharing it with others.
Give us a heart for the lost that through your skill and through your wisdom, we might help to, to live out your mission for us to spread the gospel to all nations, to make new disciples before it is everlastingly too late, to teach them all the things that you've commanded them, baptizing them, celebrating your resurrection and the new life. So be with us now and put us to this task. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.